0: Hey y'all. It's the Christmas season, and some of my podcasts and investipods and friends wanted to bring you a Christmas time collaboration. You'll hear stories told by creators from the following podcasts Deep Dark Secrets, True Crime PI, Extinguished, Crimepedia, Walking the Line, Murder and Mimosas, Crime Over Cocktails, True Crime Authors and Extraordinary People your favorite true crime podcast with Gavin Fish, and me, Richie Buck from Santa May Be a Criminal. I'm going to remind you what I always remind you, but this right here is what we in the biz call a trigger warning. So here goes. This podcast contains talk about criminal activity, including violence and murder. It may include a few cuss words, and it's probably not appropriate for your youngins, so you might want to earmuff them or send them outside to play. Now, before we get started, I want to mention three more things. I know, I know, get to it, Buck, but we Southerners like to talk. First up, any opinions in these stories are solely those of the specific creators presenting the story. Suspects mentioned in these tales are considered innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law, and these are real stories about real people people who experience unimaginable horror and tragedy. The most important thing we can do to honor the victims and the families of these stories is play an active role in our justice system, remain vigilant in our understanding of our surroundings. And support organizations that work to make sure these stories remain the exception and not the rule. And just so you know, some of these stories are going to be long, some of them are going to be short, but you never know what you're going to get until you tune in. Thanks for listening. This time of year, it's hard to go anywhere and not see Santa Claus. From the lawns of Middle America, to commercials where the Jolly Elf is played by the likes of John Travolta, George Clooney, or John Legend, or in an endless list of holiday movies that captivate us and take their own spin of the legend. Some have even seen Mommy kissing Santa Claus. Others see him at Santa Cons or what is left of malls around the world. Today's crime was characterized by a journalist in 1930s Texas, Boyce House, as the most spectacular crime in the history of the Southwest, surpassing any in which Billy the Kid or the James Boys had figured. And perhaps it was. I've been trying to tell you that Santa may be a criminal because you see, in 1927, some people saw Santa Claus robbing a bank. That year... On December 23rd, the Jolly Elf and a group of his nefarious helpers showed up at the First National Bank in Cisco, Texas and robbed it of more than $12,000, a sum that today would equal over 200000 a solid score, except this Santa and his elves had no idea the reckoning and violence that would come their way once they went on the run. Cisco, Texas is a small town in the heart of the Lone Star State. Today, its population is just under 4,000 people. At the time of the crime, an average of four banks a day were being robbed in the state of Texas. Bank robberies were so out of control, in fact, that the Texas Bankers Association put a $5,000 bounty on the head of any bank robber that a fellow Texan killed, adjusting for inflation. $5,000 from 1927. Would equal approximately $85,000 today. Apparently, in 1927, killing bank robbers was a pretty good living. In late December 1927, Cisco, Texas was relatively quiet. Little did anyone know that just about 120 miles to the north, plans were being made to steal not just money, but the spirit of Christmas at First National Bank. Because there in Wichita Falls, four men were crafting a plot. Those four men were ex-cons Marshall Ratliff, Henry Helms, and Robert Hill. They also planned to bring along Louis Davis, a man who had never committed a crime but was a relative of Helms. Davis would serve as a group's safecracker. Ratliff had lived much of his life in Cisco, a benefit to understanding the layout and logistics of his plan, but a hindrance when it came to being recognized. He knew he needed a disguise. Either out of convenience or to be cheeky, he asked to borrow a Santa beard and costume from Josephine Heron, who managed the boarding house where he'd been staying in Wichita Falls. As the four men entered town, Ratliff got into costume, perhaps even got into character. He placed the beard on his face and he slid the suit over his frame. He then told his co-conspirators to drop him off down the street from the bank they were to then stage the car off the alley as easy access for a quick escape once they had finished the job. As you might expect, Santa Claus walking down the street of Cisco, Texas just a couple days before Christmas put the children of the town in a tizzy. They rushed at the jolly man who appeared friendly but undeterred from his goal. The bank rested on a corner. If he stood out front, you would see that the alley was to the right of the large brick building with big plate glass windows the doors also mainly glass had wooden frames and low handles a simple striped awning draped the entryway and signs were hung in the window to clearly mark this was a place to store and retrieve your earnings as santa approached the bank the children who'd gathered around him thankfully began to peel away they would not follow santa inside Well, at least not most of them. When Santa Claus opened the door to First National, he found four men, two employees, and two customers. The words, Hello, Santa, came from somewhere, but he didn't respond. A door from the bookkeeping room opened, and two girls entered, both just in fourth grade. Then, a woman pulled by her six-year-old from the streets entered the bank from behind him. She'd seen Santa go inside and desperately wanted to follow and probably let him know of her Christmas wishes. A lot of things happening and converging all at once. That's the way these things usually go. Uncontrollable. Chaotic. Despite all their planning, this wasn't a carefully crafted movie sequence. This was real life. It's impossible to know if there was a moment for Santa to reconsider. To know if he wanted to take it all back. If he did, it was too late. For at that moment... Helms, Hill, and Davis burst through the door wielding pistols. The evil elves yelled for people to put their hands up. The mother of the six year old grabbed her by the hand and rushed into an alley. She yelled, They're robbing the bank. Santa's senses sharpened as he snapped back into character. He pulled a sack from underneath his costume and instructed the employees to fill it with money and open the vault. When all was said and done, Santa and his elves retrieved more than $12,000 along with what was later determined as approximately $150,000 in bonds. The town's police chief, G.E. Bedford, known as BIT, and two of his officers, R.T. Rio Reddies and George Carmichael, rushed toward the danger. The chief posted himself in the front of the alley and instructed Reddies and Carmichael to position themselves at the back. Inside, the robbers realized they were up the creek. The bank was surrounded, and you know what they say about desperate times... So, they rounded up the six people from the lobby and forced them toward the alleyway door. As they passed the bookkeeping room, they collected two more hostages, bringing their total to eight. How could they fit so many in the car, you might wonder? That was never the plan. Instead, they used the eight to form a human shield around them to help them avoid bodily injury and to give them enough time to escape. Perhaps, they thought, no way would law enforcement open fire on them with so many people creating cover. If they thought that, they were wrong. As they entered the alley, gunfire echoed, a barrage of smoke and lead tearing through muscle and bone. Bandits and hostages were hit, but the chaos provided its purpose, allowing just enough of an opportunity for the bandits to retreat to their waiting car. They brought the two fourth grade girls with them, for what reason, who knows. With their adrenaline pumping and their wounds seeping, the bandits and their two child hostages roared down the roadway, searching for some way out of this mess. The safe cracker was dying. There must have been a panic in the car. There must have been confusion and frustration. They tossed roofing nails out of the windows in hopes to sabotage the tires of their pursuers, but their plan didn't take into account that they themselves were running low on fuel. Had the barrage of gunfire punctured their tank, or did they never get any fuel to begin with? Either way, they would be stuck on the side of the road soon enough. What could they do? Then, on the horizon, they saw it, an Oldsmobile making its way into town. They stopped, jumped out, and carjacked the Harris family. 14-year-old Wilson was driving, but his father, mother, and grandmother were all victims of this moment. The bandits made them get out of the car. The family rushed away as the robbers transported their hostages and their cash into the Oldsmobile. With difficulty, they moved their safecracker, Lewis Davis, into the back seat. But when they got into the Oldsmobile, they realized they couldn't go anywhere because the Harris boy had taken the keys with him. In a rush, they retransported their hostages and themselves back into their original car, leaving Lewis behind to die. By this time, the county sheriff and deputies were on the move, They sped to the spot where the Harris's Oldsmobile was left behind. There, they found Lewis Davis, unconscious and clinging to life. They also found the entire score. In the confusion of the multiple car switches, the crooks must have overlooked the cash and securities that they had in hand. All they had now were wounds. Two fourth-grade girls and a legion of Texas lawmen after them and eager to bring them back, dead or alive. They pulled the car onto the Texas plains, past scrubby brush and dry grass, and ditched the vehicle. They also ditched the girls and struck out on foot. There were several journalists, people like Boyce House, who I quoted near the beginning of this episode, who followed the lawmen to the scene. House stated, Officers and citizens poured in from all that section of the state, and such a manhunt as western Texas had never seen before was soon in progress. He continued, Many members of the posse were on horseback or on foot as they beat their way through clumps of trees, searched high grass in the bottoms of ravines, and peered around boulders and canyons. The search party eventually found a few items suspected to be left behind by Santa and his two remaining elves, an overcoat and blood-stained guns. Shortly thereafter, additional items including a suitcase and rags stained with blood. The suitcase had items to provide triage, which likely means the bandits knew, that there was at least some chance that blood or death could come as a result of their ploy. On Christmas Eve, lawmen and citizens of the surrounding area continued to pursue the criminals, but still had no luck locating the men. Then, on Christmas Day, in the evening, Santa and his evil elf stopped a car with a father and son with the last name of Wiley. The men took Carl, the younger of the two, hostage, and when driving off, his father shot at the back of the car, hitting and wounding his son. He thankfully would survive, and after the bandits released him in his car the following day, he told authorities that Santa and his evil elves were in rough shape because of their injuries as well as the cold conditions, difficult terrain, and lack of provisions. On December 26th, when Santa should have been back home at the North Pole, or as we call it around here, the Nopo, the three bandits were involved in a car chase with authorities. Upon the escape from their car, a gun battle ensued. Deputy Sheriff Cy Bradford, a man known for engaging coolly in gunfights, pulled out his double-barreled shotgun and leveled it at the criminals. As the bandits retreated, they shot at him, and he returned the favor, hitting each of them. Santa fell and could no longer go on. When he was apprehended, he was found to have half a dozen wounds from the various gun battles, and he was armed with six pistols. Santa Claus may have been in custody, but his evil elves... Were still on the loose. Texas Rangers conducted the manhunt for Helms and Hill. It's reported that there were more than 100 men on the pursuit, with 50 of them officers. Finally, a week after the robbery in Graham, Texas, approximately 60 miles northeast of Cisco, Helms and Hill were taken into custody. At trial for the bank robbery, Ratliff, our story Santa Claus, was given a life sentence. Helms, who went before the court shortly thereafter, was given the death penalty. He and his attorney fought until the end, but he was eventually executed via the electric chair nearly two years after the crime on September 6, 1929. Hill, whose defense attorney employed a strategy trying to garner sympathy for his client, drew on his childhood as an orphan. The plan worked. Hill received some leniency in the measure of a life sentence. But that's not all. Ratliff later faced a separate trial for his involvement in the death of the lawmen. You see, Bedford, the town police chief, and George Carmichael both died after the gunfight in the alleyway, just like Lewis Davis. Santa Claus would not be granted any sympathy in this case, and then was given the death penalty. But he wouldn't receive the electric chair. Instead, he ended up with what can only be considered Texas justice. After receiving word of Helm's execution... Ratliff began acting insane and filed for a lunacy hearing, perceivably to save his own skin. But two jailers, one by the name of Patrick Kilborn and the other by the name of Tom Jones, one day let their guard down. Ratliff was then able to access a gun. He attacked Jones and Kilbourne, fatally wounding Jones. Kilbourne ended up beating Ratliff into submission and getting him back into his cell. News spread on the jailer's death and Ratliff's involvement. And by nightfall the following day, November 19th, 1929, a mob of angry Texans stood outside the prison. The number of citizens is suggested to have nearly been 1,000. 15 to 20 of those men went into the jail and pulled Ratliff outside, where they had a rope. It took two attempts for them to hang Marshal Ratliff. The first time, the rope was too weak and broke. But eventually, his life ended after the second attempt. But let's turn back a moment once again to Hill, the only elf out of this ordeal to survive. Well, he was later tried for the murders of the lawmen also, but a hung jury returned. So, the life sentence would be what he had to serve. He promised to be a model prisoner, though did not get the best stars as he tried three times to escape. After being caught the third time, however, Hill lived up to his promise. He became a model prisoner. Hill was granted a conditional pardon in 1945, later he was paroled and eventually given a full pardon in 1967. When he died in 1996, he'd lived the quiet life with a family for nearly 50 years. So I guess it isn't Santa Claus who actually robbed a bank, just three ex-cons and a man who never committed a crime in his life. Why? Were they looking to make a quick buck? Maybe they had Christmas presents they wanted to buy. What's important though in this case is not Santa Claus or his elves that brought evil through the doors of First National Bank and across the Texas Plains. What's important are all the people who played a role in assisting in their capture and all the people whose lives were upset by this horrible event. Is the quick thinking of the Harris boy who smartly took the keys to the car and slowed the bandit's progress. It's young Carl Wiley who, though shot by his father in the confusion, Kept the presence of mind to give law enforcement information that helped them close in on the men. It's the jailer Jones who lost his life in the jail and Kilborn who fought Ratliff off. It's Cy Bradford's skill with the steel that he fired across a Texas oil field at fleeing men. His two fourth grade girls, a six year old and her mother. His eight people forced to become a human shield during a Texas gunfight is the spirit of Christmas in 1927, Cisco, Texas. But what's also supremely important is that three police officers ran toward that alleyway and waited for the bandage to emerge. Unfortunately, only one of them made it home. Police Chief Bit Bedford and Officer George Carmichael died due to wounds suffered in the alleyway shootout. Rio Reddy survived. But those three men ran toward the danger I'll leave you with one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite creators of all time, Mr. Rogers. You know, my mother used to say a long time ago, whenever there would be catastrophe that was in the movies or, or on the air, she would say, always look for the helpers. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. I urge you to listen to all the podcasts that are contributing to this project. Deep Dark Secrets, True Crime P.I., Extinguished, Crimepedia, Walking the Line, Murder in Mimosas, Crime Over Cocktails, True Crime Authors and Extraordinary People, your favorite true crime podcast with Gavin Fish, and of course, Santa May Be a Criminal. Now, remember, always, 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 Be nice.